This is The Art Life. Hello, I'm Zandra Robinson-Burns, writer and the founder of Heroin Training. Here with me to introduce today's interview is my co-host, actress and activist, Grace Gordon. Hi, Grace. Hi, Zandra. Today, I am sharing my interview with our guest, Grace Quantock, who is the art life. She is a psychotherapeutic counselor, a writer, storyteller, author of Beyond the Boundaries, and she any of these descriptors that we use to sum up Grace really doesn't do her justice because she has so beautifully integrated all of these parts of herself through her art life. And so she has so much wisdom to share that the best way to experience her is in in conversation or in working with her. So I am so glad that I got to do just that. Yeah, I mean, all I want to say is like, I was not familiar with her work before you you suggested her as a, as a uh, guest on the show. And I listened to this interview that you did with her. And it is absolutely my favorite interview we've had so far. She speaks with such clarity and like poetry and everything she says it was amazing I was like gasping during different (laughs) parts of the interview and going like yes and like writing things down and texting you like certain lines that she said because they were so amazing (laughs) yeah you got like live commentary from me because she's just a wonderful like just such a profound deep thinker and i'm i'm so glad to now know her work and i'm so excited for our listeners to hear the incredible things that she has to say so yay (laughs) well let's get right to it get excited here is grace quantock Hello, everyone. I am so excited to be here today with Grace Quantock, whose pronouns are she, her. She lives in Wales, and she is a psychotherapeutic counselor, writer, storyteller, wellness provocateur, and the founder of Trailblazing Wellness. Welcome to the art life, Grace. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so delighted to be here. So thank you for the invitation and thank you for everybody who's listening. I'm so excited to be spending this time with you. You are very welcome. It's so lovely to have you here and I'm excited to introduce everyone to you because you live such an art life and integrate artists and artistic practices into your work, into your healing. And I would like to start by asking you about the title of your work trailblazing wellness for those listening who have not yet watched your TEDx talk what does trailblazing mean to you and what is it about that word that inspires you so I came up um, or I I came across the idea of trailblazing um, mainly because um, I was looking for something uh, which encapsulated a lot of my experience um, as a disabled woman living with invisible illness, with chronic pain, and you know, these 
the illnesses and the pains and traumas and injuries and difficulties which many of us have, which may be invisible to the outside, um, have often, you know, had um, a lot of uh, difficulty in terms of accessing resources and systems. Um, and so, you know, I, you know, sometimes we talk about whether somebody is neurotypical or neurodiverse, I myself am neurodiverse, um, but there's also a phrase that some people use in disability community, which is biotypical. So I am not biotypical. Um, my, uh, you know, living body is certainly does not uh, meet a lot of the, the criteria or the categories that might be expected of a woman of my age. Um, and so, you know, I experience quite a lot of um, challenge around that it's in terms of um, blame or dismissal or also um, kind of over prurient interest um, there's a lot of invasion of the disabled body in space um, and in terms about um, ideas around uh, privacy are very very different um, not in me but in other people feeling that they can can ask me so sometimes I explain it to people that if they've ever been pregnant or being close to somebody who's been pregnant um, that level of uh, community uh, grasping uh, and of expectation of access to, to the body and to information is really, really cool. So it's like, you know, somebody in the street or somebody say, you know, um, is it a girl or a boy? Okay, way to just start the gender binary right there in the street. Okay. Um, and, you know, often like people say, are you going to have a natural birth? To which I think is the best answer ever is Gala Darling's answer, which in terms, she talked about um, plastic surgery, surgery with this. Um, and she said, you know, is it natural? She said, no, it's supernatural. First outcome, the bats. <laughs> <laughs> this, is, this is clearly the only way to go. Um, but that level of kind of um, uh, invasion was, was really, really cool for me when I was going out, I was just getting you know, strangers have stopped me in the street and asked me, like, will you have a walk again? Will you have children? Um, and kind of, you know, it was really, really painful. And so I was very much made to feel um, othered. And mm. the, the, the issue, the difficulty, like I couldn't get someone in my wheelchair, for example, was always located in me. That I was the broken one. I was the problem. Rather than thinking, why have we built an environment that people who've got buggies, small children, heavy shopping, wheelchairs, broken leg, dementia, for example, why have we built something that none of them can use? Uh, so, you know, I was, you know, trying to unfold and navigate all of this while I was going through it and just thought, you know what, instead of always being, of starting to take on other people's idea of me as being like a freak or a weirdo or somebody inexplicable, perhaps actually I was a trailblazer. Maybe actually mm. I was ahead of my time, which, you know, turned out to be the case in terms of like, I was doing things that, you know, cause I'd done such, such, I ended up doing such unconventional healing methods when, you know, the traditional ones that I tried first just didn't, didn't work for me and, and often weren't designed for people like me. The, you know, the medical tests, um, medical trials don't really are not inclusive in terms of the the, the, the people they're testing so I really wasn't it wasn't designed for me and so I started doing you know conventional things like drinking green juice and I had a Vitamix you know like 15, 10 years ago 15 years ago and at the time people in Wales where I am at least never heard of those things 
And so I thought, maybe I'm not just the weird person that's carrying this, this jar of what people, everyone says is pond water and says, oh, you've got tadpoles, gross. And what if actually I'm, I'm a trailblazer and I'm blazing a path for others um, and we're all doing something together in this, this new place we find ourselves in, which is often that uncharted land of illness that we never wanted to be in. No, we none of us manifested this. Nobody, this isn't some magical life lesson that a deity is providing for me. Instead, it, it's uncharted territory, but it's something that we can pick our own path through it, perhaps. I love the ownership that you take of, uh, of that role as trailblazer, as leader, and also as creator. It's really exciting to me to hear about paving the way through, or I guess not paving, trailblazing the way through wellness so that others can follow. And uh, I, I love how that integrates your experience and perhaps some of the discomfort of your experience with also the, the empowerment of creating something new. Absolutely. And, you know, I think it can be... Um we can be very generative in this. I mean, at the same time, like I'm very much for that, um, you know, being disabled doesn't oblige us to be an inspiration to anybody. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I don't have to, um, like a friend of mine, you know, went through a very serious illness, went through a partner's very serious illness. And afterwards said to me, I don't want to write a book. I said, well, you know, don't think you have to write a book. But there's almost this idea kind of, especially this is like very early on before like wellness blogs were really a thing as they are now. There, were, there weren't very many people kind of doing this kind of thing because I am of a great age as we must all appreciate in this moment. Um, and so uh, like there was almost this expectation that if you survived this, there was some thing you had to give forward. I, said, no, I don't think you, you have to write a book about this. I don't think this has to be the thing you talk and write about. It may be what dominates um, for various reasons, both internal and external, you, you know, you're made to look at it every day, but you can um, do something absolutely else. You can, you know, eat bonbons, you can watch soap operas, you can read novels, you can create pleasure for yourself, you can write novels, you can paint, you can go and lie in the garden for a bit. If you have a garden, like, it's, it's not an obligation, but I think what we do is we create um, ways forward every day. So like people will, um, you know, find ways to uh, navigate and circumnavigate. And there's a very much uh, a generative and a, cre a creative kind of, uh, I see it as like a punk or kind of a hackery type um, spirit in, uh, you know, disability life and activism, where you're just used to reframing and navigating and finding new ways to do things. And many people do bring that forward into an actual what's more traditionally creative work. Mm. Thank you for that reminder of that distinction because we hear the stories that are from the creators and it, it, it unfortunately not as many stories are shared as I would like to hear and so I I appreciate your your perspective on illuminating the stories that aren't told as well. Mm, thank you. And 
I mean, I'm noticing even at the moment, because I'm doing a, a, a writing class in, in creative nonfiction, um, I'm just noticing that whenever I get feedback on my writing, or each of the, I mean, it's great feedback, I really appreciate it, but both of them so far have said, because they need two weeks in, and both the, the peers who fell back said, oh, you know, um, you just, I noticed you just slipped in the, 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 the mention for their personal essays, the mention that you use a wheelchair. This is fascinating. Were you assuming that I was walking? Hmm. Did you? What else did you assume? Did you assume I was straight? Yes, right. Wrong thing too. <laughs> um, that's going to be a fun conversation. Uh, but like, there is this assumption of like, you know, who is in literature? You know, like um, a kind of a cis, white, straight, middle class, often male person, um, non-disabled, neurotypical, um, and so I really noticed those ideas that kind of almost I, I should have said it up front or I should have let them know from the beginning so mm. they, cause they could picture me like this. And I thought, how fascinating that that is how it was approached. Um, because what I'd love to see is, um, well, years, when I first started um, my podcast, I spoke as part of an interview, which we didn't uh, release it fully in the end for, for technical reasons, but um, with Ellen Stowe, who was the first disabled woman to do a uh, photo spread in Playboy hmm. um, and you know uh, I whatever we think of of Playboy I am um, you know absolutely pro uh, expression and sexuality and consent and uh, empowerment and um, uh, she has said once that um, like that uh, and this is a story that she that she's told online so I can you know share this and and that she quotes um, that she was crying and her friend came and said, oh, you, you know, why are you crying? Is it? And she said, my boyfriend broke up with me. I said, oh, did your boyfriend break up with you because you were disabled and you couldn't cope with it? She said, no, it was because I slept with his best friend. <sighs> I said, oh, did you sleep with his best friend because you were so upset about your disability? <laughs> <laughs> so kind of there's this idea that if you're disabled in a story, the story has to revolve around mm. disability. Whereas like, I want to see like a bank robber who you know um, is simultaneously I don't know running some kind of scam and it's like a mystery and you know they happen to they are disabled and of course it's part of the story you know we don't just pretend that it doesn't impact them but they don't do it because they're angry or because they're trying to buy the world's best wheelchair like they are a fully rounded character and that's not the tragedy of the tale um so yeah I think it's I'd love to see more of that in in our, in our art. Well, speaking of art, we've had a little glimpse into the kinds of art that you do and your creative imagination. What is a typical day like for you in your creative practices? So right now, as you know, as we're recording this during lockdown. So my day is impacted by that because previously I'd be traveling to co-working spaces and I actually see clients at a local art gallery. Um, I got to pick where I wanted to have my private practice. Um, and so I picked a um, art space, which is a um, applied and mixed arts and, and craft area. It has several galleries, um, beautiful cafe, the Oriel Cafe. And um, I see clients in the room that actually used to be the um, the master bedroom. 
So it, it's a, an ancient manor house which has got like 12th century foundations um, has been built on since then um, and actually when you go in the door if you look to the left on the lintel you'll see where they carved heights the sons of the house as they grew up um, so it's a very kind of rich so, so beautiful they, they, were, they were called Rupert and Ronald and they helped <laughs> and they helped donate the house and, and you know give, give it forward to never use for the community um, and so you know, normally I'm actually accessing art spaces and when I teach um, creative therapeutic journaling, I am teaching with art materials there. Um, I was on the bus at one point and, I, and the bus braked very quickly on my way to one of the journaling workshops and my, my basket of art supplies flew down the bus and just all of the pasta pastels and all of the charcoal and all of the pencils just went over an entire bus. But luckily, this was the South Wales Valleys, and everybody's very friendly, so they just pulled the bus over, and everybody helped me pick them up. And I was kind of going, "I'm, I'm teaching art. I'm trying to explain why I'm carrying a basket of art oh. with me. How do you explain that?" But so, you know, I'm not accessing those accessing those spaces at the moment. But you know, the my my daily routine um, generally has a kind of a core to it. And I worked with Claudia Olive, who does a beautiful course on. Um, creating your morning practice and it has um, a practice that I, I talk about in uh, my book Beyond the Boundaries, Finding Freedom and Fulfillment Within Four Walls, about having an accordion to your practice. So I do very much have an accordion so it kind of has these bones that I will do every day and then I can kind of expand them if I feel that's necessary or I can just um, you know squeeze them up and kind of minimize them into a smaller space if I haven't got so much capacity um, and so, you know, at the moment I do have, um, uh, I'm balancing kind of around um, my mental self-care, which, you know, is under a government that at times recently has, you know, been talking about the ceilings of care and the assessments for whether disabled people, disabled people meet those ceilings of care. And there was a time in which I would have been considered to not meet the criteria for ventilation. Mm. So just mentally living under a, living in a country that's saying that you were not somebody that we would save. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. Just, yeah. So just kind of living with that and obviously managing the, sh the shortages and the lack of care. Like I can't access physiotherapy and such at the moment. So, you know, there's a lot of just managing that in my daily routine. Um, but, you know, I, I kind of have two ways to two ways that art is in there. In the one I'm creating, so like I am writing every day at the moment, and it's very much the kind of the beads um, that that either are holding me that I'm threading together to make a day as we go forward, and to make uh, to to carry on forward through my life. Is that something that I can show up to? The page is always there. What I put on it can be, I can think it's fantastic or I can think it's terrible, but that's not really, my judgment isn't really part of the practice. And me just showing up to it every day is, and that starts mm. to kind of thread forward. Um, and then I'm also, it's what I'm consuming. So, you know, I mean, when Boris Johnson was elected, you know, as part of my management of that, I prescribed myself therapeutic doses of poetry every day. Wonderful. Mm. And so kind of have been, you know, reading and taking in that. Um, so what does a, a prescribed 
therapy reading practice look like? How do you organize that logistically? Okay, so the therapy is in terms of what I'm calling a therapeutic dose. Mm. So, for example, sometimes for my bones, I'm on like a therapeutic dose of the medication. So it's like a really, really extremely high dose. Um, so that's kind of my way of saying a lot. Um, and so I, uh, what I did was I looked at the poets and artists who I really love. I looked at people who've got books coming out, who had books coming out soon that I could support. Um, and, you know, and also shopped my own bookcases. Um, and made a pile, which I have in the corner next to me. It's, it's getting topplingly high at this point, I will admit. Um, and uh, so there's kind of two aspects to it. So the one aspect is that I would you know, pick a book from the pile in the morning, and some I was reading through poem by poem, and some I would just open randomly. And I would read it and just kind of allow the words to work through my body. So just breathe it in. And it's kind of hard to describe because it wasn't something I used to do. I used to just kind of swallow things, right? Yep, got it. And so this is more like reading it a little more slowly and alongside the body work that I've done and, this, and the therapeutic work that I've done, it kind of left me a little more um, uh, able to, to process and assimilate such images. So sometimes I'd, I would take a photograph of the image and bring it with me in the day if I had to travel outside and go back to it in moments. Um, sometimes I'd read it again before bed. And then kind of the other side of it is I've worked is I've been working to, you know, be a good literary citizen at these times. So for example, I'm trying to review and share one book a week. So I leave a review on Goodreads and other major retail sites which I may not shop at myself, but I appreciate are important for authors and um, and share about it and recommend it for somebody. Um, because you know even buying the book um you know hopefully because i buy from an independent local bookshop and i'm buying you know predominantly marginalized own voices authors or entirely marginalized own voices authors if you think about it um still you know the amount they get from the poetry book in terms of money is so little compared to the amount of support and joy it gives me so i'm always trying to look for other opportunities to kind of give give back to that and support them so that you know, they can be restored after the work and the labor they've done. Um, and obviously if I want more poetry and work in the world, then I'm part of um, creating a world in which that can come into being. Grace, I love this. <laughs> <laughs> I'm really understanding what you mean now when you say that you're threading together all of these different practices throughout your day, even starting by calling this your therapeutic dose of poetry and relating that to other therapeutic doses. Mm. And just everything about it, it's not just reading the poem, but the intention with which you do that and the intention with which you understand the the poem's place in the world and in the economy and and in culture so it it's a word we use on the art life a lot is integrated and i that that is it right there no thank you no absolutely and 
it's been interesting because um integration is something i've been working on this year because i do normally do the, the whole word for the year and um this year you know for the last last year my um clinical supervisor for my psychotherapeutic work has been really encouraging me and saying you know you really need to take an integration year you know you really oh. need to take a year that you need to kind of not take on new things and i'm like Yes, maybe after I've done the last, the next seven things that are about, because, you know, maybe it's very exciting. But this year I said I was going, and I have done, was doing a deepening year. So oh. deepening, integrating, consolidating. So I will say I have ordered some, some, I have ordered books that were necessary for the research I was doing and the studying I'm doing. But, um, and I have been reading books that I already had. So books that I had ordered pre-2020. Um, and when I'm considering them to be, uh, you know, therapeutic, that's, I'm kind of counting that as medicine. So this may sound like I'm just saying I can order all the books I want, but it's really not. I'm ordering so many fewer books than I would have. So please understand, this is actually a very great concession on my part. Um, and so what I've been mostly doing is reading the books I already have or have already read. And basically nobody who knows me, I don't think, would ever have thought that I could have got to May predominantly reading only books that I have reread. But it means that when I go back to them, I find another layer to them. And one thing I do do is I, is I totally do marginalia. So I write in the margins. Um, I didn't I know there was a word for that. Ah. Yes. Well, that's beautiful. I, um, isn't it? And, and I, I do love doing it. And I think I originally came across it in Patty Diggs book, 37 Days, where she kind of encouraged you to almost have a conversation with the book where you are at that time. Um, and then I, I loved it. Because, who was it? There was a scientist who um, is going to come to me, who uh, when when he went sailing and he was a researcher and he um, had, he read in kind of like French and Latin and then he annotated his books in Italian and Greek and he once fought to protect his onboard ship library from pirates. So I was like, this is, this is, this is clearly how we need to be. So I, you know, I, I, I will annotate the books and have arguments, conversations with the authors in, in the margins. And then I will come back to them years later and use a different, um, not a different colour normally, normally a different density of pencil, so like an HB or a 60, and plus my handwriting is often different by that time, it's, it's kind of, it's, it's, it's settling all the time, thankfully, um, and so I'll see what I felt at the age when I read it last, so I'll, I'll put in the, in the, in the um, fly sheet, the leaf at the start of the book, you know, the date I'm doing it, and the age I am, and then I'll go back and do it now at this age, and then I'll go back hopefully in years to come and see what I thought of it in my 20s versus my 30s versus onwards. And then I'll even talk to myself in the margins. So it's just this ongoing conversation with the authors and with my, my own process of the books. I can picture that with the different pencil densities. What have you noticed as you have these conversations with your former selves? <sighs> mm. Um, it's a great question. Therapy helps. Uh -huh. <laughs> Maybe that's not the answer we were looking for. Um, that the very things that I often um, 
found very surprising or things that kind of were activating for me early on um, were generally activating because there was trauma there. Wow. So it turns out that actually there was a reason I reacted that strongly um, and that I love the same things now that I loved then. Um, and so, but I, I, I come up with different angles now. So this is like, you know, all healing I see as it's like a spiral. So, you know, we just, we do go through things. We, you think oh, I've done that issue. We do come back to it. We come back to it as different people. Now. So we're coming from a different angle, in a different direction, in a different way. Um, so it's lovely to kind of see like the level I was at in my experience of a, of a topic. And like some of the books, um, like there's one very influential psychoanalytic book, which I read um, and I can, you know, I've got my annotations, my first reading of it. And like now I went and it was so impactful for me. I went and trained with the author who sadly died, but her protege is teaching. So I went and trained with, with one of her students who's now the head of, of, of the work in Europe. And then I joined the, the governing body for that work. Um, and I'm practicing it very regularly. So, you know, seeing how it's, it, it's uh, worked through me and then and now I'm, you know, writing for their journal that they publish. So I'm now, you know, part of that lineage therapeutically and artistically. Um, so seeing how I go to the book from that perspective is just, it's really beautiful. Mm. You have mentioned so many wonderful resources and friends of yours and artists, and you do this in your book as well. And I was just found myself wondering, how do you go about finding your people and becoming part of their lives and inviting other artists into your life? What is that process like for you? I read everybody's bibliographies. Mm. That's it. <laughs> it's, it's, yeah, as I read, when I love an author, I read their bibliography and then I go and read their books, the books in the bibliography, and then I go and read the books listed in those bibliographies. Um, deepening. And, exactly, deepening. And, you know, I also try and, um, you know, say thank you and kind of show up for things. So if I really love something, um, I'm going to show up at its launch, I'm going to share it, I'm going to promote it, I'm going to really be an advocate for it because I care about it because I want it to continue. Um, and so it really is just kind of following that kind of breadcrumbs of the passion um, that kind of passion obsession moment um, and, you know, watching what unfolds and watching what sparks there. Because um, actually I just I spoke to a friend today and it was my birthday on the weekend um, and I had a Zoom party and because it was a Zoom party, I thought, gosh, well, I'll invite people that I couldn't normally invite to my house because, you know, they can't cross an ocean to come to my house, for example. Um, and a, a friend of mine and several of my teachers were there, which is very wonderful of them to come. And one of my friends said, you know, she'd been looking um, in, her, in her therapeutic practice for, um, you know, uh, you know, wondering in, in her personal artistic practice, you know, what, what might be my next steps? And she met one of my teachers at my party and just went, that's my next step. You were doing the work which I did not know existed. But now I see that it's possible. That is what I want to do too. And just that synchronicity. So I think sometimes mm. it's just the synchronistic moments where you meet somebody and something connects um, and then you just follow it forward. 
and I think also there's just a lot of kind of I think I'm generally quite tenacious so there's quite a lot of like I'll just keep going with something yeah. um, like there was one consulting role which I, I wanted to support a certain organization um, I didn't get the job I came second um, but I was amazed that I came second because like there'd been like a record number of applicants like 500 applicants and people had flown in to to interview for it it was this huge deal which I hadn't realized when I first kind of got got towards it and um I but I so cared about what they were doing and so wanted um you know to to engage and to be a part of that work and because I was you know really felt that they they needed the input that I had that wasn't being held elsewhere um I just kept showing up at the job like they'd given it to me um even though they hadn't and so they did <laughs> I was like, yeah, I'm just I'm not good. I'm sorry. Like, you think not giving me the job will stop me, you know, engaging in something that's very important for my community? That's not true. Mm. I'm just going to keep going. Um, and you know, th there was a level that there was a space at which the public could attend. I wasn't just like ramming my way into offices or anything. There was like a public gallery you could go to. So I just kept showing up there, um, and you know, responding, and then eventually ended up doing a good job. And what was it that? gave you the strength to to keep going and to keep showing up even even though you got second place initially um i guess because i it wasn't really about me so mm. it was about what the work they were doing and um the uh, you know what was possible and so i just really felt strongly that um the you know what I was bringing wasn't wasn't being held by any by any other aspect of the organization um and so because of that I thought well, you know this is bigger than me I figured out that this, this thing exists and this is kind of a, a level of risk there that I'm identifying um I you know really want to I, I still want to be I want to be part of it and and help safeguard and help contribute and I'm not interested in whether it's kind of prestige or even necessarily in whether I get paid or of course I needed to get paid but for as long as I could do it I was just going to show up and be of service as much as I could um, and it ended up with a role but I had no idea that, that was going to happen at the time. Mm -hmm. Grace I can't end this interview without mentioning that you have a wonderful resource on your website right now about the lessons you've learned from six years of being homebound. And there are so many wonderful links there. My reaction to this was twofold, where first I'm grateful for your experience and all the work that you've put into these, these lessons. And also it was a great reminder that while much of the world is experiencing being at home to a degree right now. This is something that many like you have experienced before in less of a, uh, a broader public way. And so I'm curious to hear what is it like to be at home again right now after experiencing something like this in the past? Well, I mean, one of the biggest things I have to say there is that, you know, I'm really aware of how privileged I am to be able mm. to be safe at home. So, you know, I have work that I'm able to do from home. Um, 
we're able to uh, to bring my partner home with 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 me, so we can be here safe together, because they actually have a frontline uh, role. But um, where they are, there wasn't. Um, we didn't feel the, the the that they were adequately kept safe. Mm. Um, and so you know, we had to take the decision to uh, uh, step back from that until there is safe safeties in place. Um, and you know, now we're seeing an NHS um, in England, there have been some uh, uh, interventions around assessing um, BAME staff uh, for FITMAS testing uh, as a priority and or moving them into uh, non-COVID exposed roles. Um, there's definitely some problematic things around how that's being rolled out and the discussions around that and where the issue is being oriented. So I'm in no way saying that I'm, um, you know, thinking that it's not got its problems. And of course, um, I'm just listening to the people who are talking about it, who um, are in BAME communities and in frontline roles themselves and have that experience. Um, but, uh, you know, as my partner is, um, as, as South Asian, um, we're, we're really aware of, of the risk and how, how that's different in the health and the care sector um, in terms of what's being uh, rolled out. So, you know, I'm first acknowledging that actually I'm very privileged that we can be safe at home together at this time and really um, concerned for everybody who is on the front line and, and, and unsafe with that and appreciating very much what is being done there um, by them. So, but for me personally, it's kind of weirdly familiar to be at home because, of course, I did it for so long. I've only really been kind of working outside the home a lot for like about three or four years. So I spent the majority of my adult life working from home. Mm. And so it's it's something which um, works with my, my plan of deepening for the year. That's mm -hmm. Apparently that was quite a prescient thing to decide. That's quite a good fit. Um, is not to be trying to kind of expand to new pastures because clearly that's not going to be happening for me at the moment. And um, I did have some guilt for some time about you know seeing a lot of uh, discussion about kind of people volunteering for COVID. I'm in a mentoring scheme for women in public life um, because of some of my non-exec director roles and. Uh, I, you know, many, most people in the group are now, you know, stopping work or being furloughed and doing COVID volunteering. And, you know, we had to do video about what, what we're doing and how we're coping with lockdown. And I was a little bit, in, in my video was like, when I'm working from home, like I normally do, seeing clients, like I normally do, writing, like I normally do, like, obviously I'm dealing with shortages and things and you know it, it's some lots of lots is challenging but predominantly I'm, I'm I'm able to keep working um and actually when the video came out everybody else was talking about all the volunteering they were doing and it was just me being like I'm at home and then I thought about this and I thought well actually you know what you're doing is surviving at mm. a time when lives like yours are being made very at risk and there's a great deal of eugenics talk and a great deal of discussion around how this is to survive at this time um, so, you know, really, you, you, would do, you, are, you are doing something, um, which is surviving and that matters. And although we all want to, to be of, of help and resource, um, you know, it's not the, the, how we frame what is help, what is resource is very narrow um, and very much uh, predicated towards people who are in certain states of health or who are in certain sections of society. Um, 
And so I thought, you know, in some ways, keeping going is a resistance and is supportive and keeping being myself and um, doing the support and peer work and, and therapeutic work that I already do. And obviously I've taken on new clients during COVID because many people are wanting to know, you know, how to deal with being housebound, how to deal with trauma and, you know, their specialisms of mine. So I was speaking to a friend and I said, you know, I don't know if I should be trying to sew gowns or something, but like, you know, I have hemiplegia, I can't really use a sewing machine very easily. And my friends said, well, hold on, you know, other people are furloughed, you're still working full time. Mm. I said, oh yeah. <laughs> well, then, in what time exactly, Grace, did you expect yourself to do COVID volunteering? Oh yeah, that's, that's a very good point. So I kind of handled that aspect. Um, and then it's just, uh, you know, continuing on and, and keeping, um, keeping navigating because day by day the news is changing. Thank you for that perspective on surviving and on continuing to keep going. And it reminds me of, in a full circle way, what we were talking about at the beginning of this conversation about the pressure to be an inspiration and the pressure to give back with your creation. I'm seeing some commonality there in um, in experiencing this time of crisis in particular. So thanks for threading that all the way through. Grace, we like to end these interviews and episodes by asking, what is the art life? So to you, what is the art life? I love this question. So I think for me, the art life is both sustaining and generative. And it's wrapped up with both legacy and with liberation. So when I'm, when I'm living an art life in terms of my creativity of how I navigate um, blocked entrances and inaccessible built environments, how I navigate rigid, rigid medical systems or um, you know, punitive benefits systems, um, I, or how I, you know, create food that might be beautiful or um, using my journal in a way that might be beautiful or making a piece of art or a piece of writing. Um, it's, I think of, you know, my, art my artistic ancestors and, and my allies, my friends and, um, you know, the artists I admire and whose work aligns to or lives alongside my own and, you know, also my legacy and so how all that feeds into that. So sometimes when I come across um, some art, I, I got really puzzled because I was like, I don't really get it. Like this art doesn't seem to be related to um, to something that is about, I don't feel like this now, but I did at the beginning when I first came across some of this was I only really experienced art that was related to survival that you, you made because you were trying to survive something oppressive or you were trying to create a space for yourself. And I mean, just before, just after Trump was elected, I did, um, I made a list of things I would want to do were there to be somebody like Trump elected in the UK um, mm. and or like another world conflict or crisis. Um, and I made the list and like, it took me a couple of years and I, and I went through and I did manage everything on it. Um, and one of the things on it was for research how you know marginalized and oppressed peoples have survived under oppressive regimes 
Mm. And, you know, I've read people's experiences and talked to people who've lived under those regimes. And, you know, the answer really was art, was art and community. Wow. Yeah. So, so for me, the art life is, is sustaining and resistance and generative and compassionate. Ooh, yes, it is. <laughs> well, thank you so much for adding that beautiful description, that beautiful patchwork to our quilt of art life definitions and for joining us today with this wonderful conversation. I recommend that everyone listening check out your book, Beyond the Boundaries. And in particular, I loved the audiobook version. And my favorite chapter was about decorating your home, which I've never quite heard a, uh, a, a take that was so like inspiring and magical and well, I can do this with everything that I have at home already. So I will leave that teaser for anyone listening. But Grace, where else can people find your art? Thank you. Thank you very much for the recommendation. Thank you, everybody who checks out the book. Um, so you can find the book at grosequantock.com forward slash BTB for Beyond the Boundaries, BTB. Um, so I'm at grosequantock.com. You can also find me on Twitter at grace underscore quantock. Um, and I am also at, uh, you can sign up for my uh, newsletter, which is Postcards from the Margins. There's some beautiful gifts in there. And uh, that is at um, uh, bit.ly forward slash postcards from the margins. And we will leave links to all these wonderful goodies and avenues to explore trails to blaze to trails to walk <laughs> in our podcast show notes for this episode grace thank you again so much for joining us thank you welcome back grace gordon <laughs> Thank you for making it clear which grace I am. <laughs> what is the art life? Um, the art life is finding your people in bibliographies. What? <laughs> what? I have never, I felt like that was like a miracle. <laughs> that, that concept that she shared to such a great question that you asked, by the way, was so exciting to me and I was like oh yes yes now whenever I read a book by like a especially non-fiction by like a a living day a a currently living author and I'm really inspired by everything they say I'm gonna look up who all of their friends are I'm gonna look up in the bibliography all of the things they read and that is how I'm gonna find my people I mean for a for a podcast hosted by two bookworms you couldn't come up with a better concept a better um call to action than find your community through bibliographies (laughs) wow thank you grace i feel like this series of interviews that we're doing bringing people onto our show is sort of like our the art life's bibliography as well but it just makes me more excited to frame it in that way i just i love how grace talks and how she'll just casually mention 
something like, oh, you look in the bibliography, of course. I'm like, oh, yeah, you're right. <laughs> or how Why haven't I been doing mention, that? She'll casually mention that she will see her clients at an art gallery. And I was like, hello, that's beautiful. Like, you know, just just that little little nugget from the interview was so exciting to me. Therapeutic doses of poetry. Like, what? She is just brilliant. I'm smiling so hard just, like, talking into my microphone right now because she is just amazing. Amazing Grace. <laughs> Zandra, what is the art life? The art life is creating ways forward. I have been thinking so much about what Grace said about being a trailblazer and also about her note that there isn't pressure for disabled people to be an inspiration. And I was thinking about how creating ways forward is like this personal art that we give ourselves and it doesn't it's not for anybody else necessarily it doesn't have to help anybody else it probably will just by being that example but i i think that creating a way forward for yourself is creating and it it can be as simple as that too yeah we talk so much on this show about really needing to find find out the right way to do something for you and I really appreciated how she got into that discussion about like why does accessibility or why does like being a person with a disability have to be part of every piece of writing that I do. I was just so glad that she talked about that. Um, you know, whether it was examples from being in school or just like a, a broader example of how people talk about people with disabilities needing to be an inspiration or like needing to like no you get to decide how you share your story and what stories you want to tell at all um I'm so glad that she she was willing to to share all of that with us and it was you know it's exactly what the show is about it's about defining who how you want to tell your story defining how you want to live your art life and that it's just for you and I'm I'm still learning how to even talk about these issues. So I'm really grateful to get her perspective. Um, I noticed that you just said people with disabilities instead of disabled people. And should I make that switch? Yeah. Um, so generally, you want to put the person first. So while we like grew up with certain like phrases like disabled people, um, you know, now it, it's like, it's more accepted, I guess, to always put the person first. So you want to say people with disabilities so that the what's what's being focused on is that someone's a person. Um, so that's always like that was like the the reframe that I had a couple of years ago. And I try to bring that forward. Yeah, I I mean, part of me wants to be like, let's wait, rewind. I want to re re-record that. But I also want to I kind of want to keep this in to um, to emphasize that. So, yeah, I think thank that it's you. good because people will learn with us you know like that's I like that we're having this conversation on the air um and, I'm, and thank you for asking me you're welcome Grace was there anything else that you wanted to share that spoke to you in your your commentary of the conversation no I mean I just 
grabbed a pile of poetry and put it next to my bed and was like, okay, <laughs> here are my therapeutic doses of poetry. I I know I already mentioned it, but that was just so beautiful. And I always love when guests have like a very specific um piece of homework that they can give us you know and they they give us like just such a clear concept something so healing or so creative and so I know that I left the interview going like okay time to get a stack of poetry together um I'm just like yeah I'm so excited by that concept so I just want to say thank you Grace for being such a wonderful guest I'm I can't wait to read more of your work yes I I recommend Grace's book, Beyond the Boundaries, and especially the audiobook, because her reading of it really brings it to life. So we're going to put a link to that in the show notes. And let us know if you're listening and are inspired to pick up some prescribed poetry as well. Yeah, and tell me what your poetry recommendations are, because I always want to hear that. Yes, please. Second, seconding that. So before we close, we do have an ask of everyone listening, and that is for our next campfire episode in the time of coronavirus. We are asking the question, how have you grown? So please share your stories with us. Email theartlife at heroinetraining.com. And we will read some of your stories on an upcoming episode of this show. I can't wait to hear what people share. I know that I myself have been already thinking about this question and what I want to share with our community. I can't wait. I, I love this prompt that you came up with, Zandra. And I know that everyone in their art lives, everyone listening to this, everyone creating or taking a rest period right now has something that they can like offer to the rest of the community here something, um, some story to, to tell about how they've grown, what they've learned. I just, I, I love these campfire episodes. I love talking with our community. And this is your, you know, this is your chance to get on the show because we read your responses and we talk about them. So I look forward to hearing from everyone. Me too. And in the meantime, from my side of the world, I will wish you all a good morning. And from my side of the world, I wish you a good night. Bye. Bye. This is The Art Life, a heroin training podcast with Grace Gordon and me, Zandra Robinson Burns. You can find us online at theartlife.show and send letters to The Art Life, care of Grace Gordon, P.O. Box number 4292. Valley Village, California, 91607, or email us, theartlife at heroinetraining.com. Our theme music is The Stream by Rory. Thank you for joining us.